This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. I'm excited to share this episode with you about the Receptiva DX test where Chris Jackson shares all sorts of helpful information. I myself dealt with unexplained infertility, so I do have a special place in my heart for it. And apologies for not being able to make this episode even shorter. But as you know, with infertility, there are so many nuances that you have to understand before making all the different tough decisions. And it's never black and white, and there's never any guarantees. And so I wanted to make sure you got to hear all the nuanced information that Chris has to share. Before we dive in a couple of announcements about FemPower Health, The season one does end right before Thanksgiving, so looking forward to sharing those last episodes with each of you, but I am planning for 2021. So if you do have ideas of guests you want me to have or specific topics that you would like me to answer based on your own health questions, uh, please send me an email at georgie at fempower-health.com. I did also want to share that uh, the Receptiva DX test is $75 off for those who are listening to the FemPower Health podcast. Check out the show notes or go to my website on the products and resources page and you'll see a link right there with the offer code, etc. So definitely check that out. And I'd greatly appreciate you sharing the FemPower Health podcast with your friends. Imagine the impact we can make on women's health if every woman felt empowered when she was talking to her doctor about the different things she's dealing with. Without further ado, let's talk to Chris. Right now, what we're doing is helping women understand what the potential of what unexplained infertility means. That that shouldn't be a diagnosis. It's just a label given to someone where people are giving up and they don't know what to tell them. They run out of answers. And so what Receptiva does is just it provides answers that are, are, are different than everything else that they're getting. And it's pointing uh, towards the uterine lining and the information it might be able to provide on why these people aren't getting pregnant. And what we're picking up is very mild or asymptomatic endometriosis, which no one was thinking about that could be impacting their ability to get pregnant or stay pregnant. So the test is done when they would normally uh, be trying to conceive, they would send it to our laboratory. They get results back in about uh, four or five days. And then that information can be used by the doctor if it's positive to uh, treat this person and give them a new pathway to pregnancy that they never thought would happen for them. What resonates with me is unexplained infertility. And obviously more so because I have a personal story around it. I ended up going through 10 of the best doctors in the country constantly being told I had unexplained infertility. And I don't know if it's because I'm a dreamer because I come from the healthcare field. I was very convinced that it just meant they either didn't know yet because science didn't catch up or they weren't trying hard enough. And lo and behold, I had some immune blood work done. And the hypothesis was that I had endometriosis, but happened to be asymptomatic. Uh, My surgeon went in with a laparoscopy and, um, I, I had it, and uh, more so than they had thought, and I got pregnant the first 
uh, IVF after. Now, I'm not at all saying everyone go get surgery and you're automatically going to get pregnant. Oh, it wasn't yeah. that simple, but you know, I I definitely hear what you're saying, and it's just it's really great that you guys are trying to solve for this. So let's back up to your background and your role with this and how you got to today, and then we can dive more into Receptiva DX. Sure, sure. I've been in uh, women's healthcare startups almost my entire career. So I've been involved with uh, genetic testing for things like cystic fibrosis. Uh, I was with the company that launched the first commercial test. Uh, I was involved in a, a, a test for uh, preterm labor to assess women that are showing up uh, in the hospitals thinking they might be in preterm labor. So that's a quick assessment that had never been done before. So I have always gravitated towards women's health care and uh, I've actually been a, a good friend and involved in a, a diff couple different business ventures with Dr. Bruce Lessie, uh, who is the uh, person behind all the research that the Receptiva test is uh, based on. And he and I stayed in touch and he let me know that he found something that was very, very exciting and uh, spent some time with him and looked at it. And I said, this is tremendous, but can we help the women? Everyone can find markers and we don't know what they mean. And, and he found this marker. It shouldn't be there when a woman's trying to get pregnant. But for some reason, all these women that couldn't get pregnant, that marker was there. So we thought we had something, but now it's like, what do you do for them? So then the next step was uh, to get involved with that. And uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a blessing. We're helping a lot of people. I never thought I'd be in this position, but uh, we now have over 300 centers. Uh, I just talked to somebody in uh, Dubai and uh, we have a center there now that's doing the tests. We've got people in Saudi Arabia that are gonna be doing the tests. It just blows my mind that we start something and then uh, we're helping women all over the world. Right. The test looks at BCL6. Mm -hmm. And what exactly is BCL6? Sure. BCL6 is that protein I was just talking about yep. that we found that just it shouldn't be there. It's a marker of inflammation. Uh, it's a marker that's actually been used in lymphoma profiles to help people understand progression of their uh, lymphatic uh, disease. Uh, it just happened to be a part of these proteins that we looked at in the sequence too that were showing up in abnormal uterine linings. When I say abnormal, meaning these, these folks couldn't conceive and uh, versus women that had normal uterine linings that didn't have this. So we started working backwards, what's happening there? And so not only is it a marker of inflammation and you, know, you just think of any type of, of, of situation uh, where there, there's something going on that shouldn't be, BCL-6 is a, uh, an inflammatory reaction to endometriosis somewhere else in the body. So it's not on the uterine lining necessarily, it could be in the pelvic area, it could be on the ovaries, what have you, but the immune response for endometriosis is inflammation on the uterine lining. And that inflammation we found is uh, enough to kind of create havoc when a woman's trying to get pregnant. When it's not there, the women's chances are, are, are much better in IVF. Uh, people that have it, uh, their chances for success if they don't do anything are, are less than 12% in IVF attempts. So very powerful information when that came out. And then, uh, then we started looking at the treatment options to see if we could help. Incredible. And given that there's just so little research right now in women's health, and even when you look at the numbers for endometriosis, this is such an incredible finding. So a question here, would you say that if you test positive for BCL-6, I don't know how much you all have to work with the FDA specifically for this, but I know you have to be really careful in 
what you're saying. I noticed the wording being very careful where it didn't say it is a diagnostic for endo, but instead it was worded more that if you test positive, you likely have it. And if you test negative, there shouldn't be a concern. So can you explain that nuance, please? Sure, sure. So obviously, uh, the only way to diagnose endometriosis is to go in uh, with laparoscopy and identify it, visually see it. So we use the word uh, detect. And when we say detect, we are, this is an indirect measurement of that. So it's very similar to other things where you might be measuring something indirectly, but it's directly related uh, to that, that, that condition. So a lot of tests are actually uh, uh, like that. But what we did in this study, when we looked at the, uh, the, the BCL-6 marker, is that we had 123 women in the original study, and they all had unexplained infertility, and that meant uh, over 35 uh, uh, trying naturally for at least a year, under 35 at least six months. They hadn't had any other, uh, anything like IVF or anything done yet. They had ruled out other male factors and, and, and female factors first. But all those women agreed to be uh, biopsied. And when the biopsies came back in those women, 65 of those 113 women tested uh, positive for uh, the BCL-6. Now, what we did is that everyone in that study agreed to be scoped. And so we're very pleased that the women tested negative. Uh, the, uh, the chances of seeing anything were less than 3%. Uh, so we, we felt really good that we weren't giving out any false negatives in that regard. On the other side of it, out of the 65 women that tested positive, 62 of them actually had visible endometriosis. So that's when we felt very comfortable. So now you're talking about sensitivity and specificity levels above uh, 90%. And that's, that's rare in a lot of uh, things in medicine. Yes. Uh, the, other, the other three women, just, just so you know, uh, one, we, had, we could not see anything. Uh, the other had a, a, a blocked fallopian tube. And then the third one had an adenomyosis, which is a growth on the outer uterine wall uh, that was there. So other things can cause inflammation and, and trigger the BCL-6 to be positive. But the majority of the time, uh, you're probably looking at uh, uh, endometriosis. And you know, if you don't mind, I just want to say something about endometriosis because people think of, you know, I, I always tell people, this is not your mom's endometriosis. This is not the, uh, the, the purpose of our test uh, originally was... Uh, knowing that there's a group of women that may not have any other symptoms, asymptomatic, uh, but they have some type of endometriosis. So they're not doubling over in pain. Uh, they don't have painful intercourse. They don't have uh, painful periods where they're just uh, cramping severely. This is the first time they've even thought about it. And, and that's where that data kind of came in. And so trust me, introducing a test and telling a doctor, you, these people might have endometriosis it's, it's been out of sight, out of mind. No one's talked about it. No one's looking for it. And a lot of the REs now today, the reproductive endocrinologists, uh, they don't offer up laparoscopy like they did 20, 25 years ago. That was a standard procedure in uh, fertility workups. And they would find endometriosis all the time. Uh, but what happened is it just kind of got pushed to the side because laparoscopy was expensive. Insurance didn't want to cover it unless you had glaring symptoms, obviously, you know, pain and that type of thing. And it just kind of, I don't want to say fell out of favor, but the focus was more on embryos. Since the last 15 years, it's all been the, the quality embryos and everything. But it's always been there. And the American Society of Reproductive Medicine always has known that endometriosis is probably one of the biggest factors in unexplained infertility. 
just didn't have a way to, uh, you know, to find it because we weren't scoping people. And, you know, someone like yourself, it's, it's hard to say, okay, I don't, I, I don't have any other signs or symptoms. Go ahead and charge me a lot of money for elective surgery that there's no indication for yet. So, hey, a biomarker coming along, it's, it was just great timing for a lot of these women. Couple things there. So one, you know, commending Dr. Leslie for his research and for you guys staying in touch and doing something with this because I was at the Endometriosis Foundation of America conference last year. Unfortunately, this year with COVID, they had to cancel it. And I think they're doing some virtual things. But it was really interesting because you have this dilemma with endo where it's not like every woman's going to walk around getting a laparoscopy, but the only way that you can determine if you have endo is to do it. And so you kind of walk around with how, how do you know what the data is for the women? Because the only way to know is to do the surgery, um, but you're not going to just randomly do the surgery. So you can't even determine like what percent of women actually have it. Like when they say one out of 10, I'm wondering if that's even accurate. I've been hearing on um, about some data that hasn't been published yet where people think the rate of endo is significantly higher. So the fact that you could have such great statistics in demonstrating that testing BCL-6 is a pretty good marker. Quite honestly, it is the best thing that is out there. Then also with the, the, the REIs, my understanding was in some of the REIs I've spoken to, so it was really interesting, you said a lot of them know endo is a big factor in unexplained infertility because none of mine ever brought that up. But in some that I have spoken to since my fertility journey, they've said that there was data showing that it didn't matter if you did the surgery or not. And that's sure. why they stopped doing it, which I find really interesting. Well, and to their credit too, when they were thinking of endometriosis, they were talking about it uh, being on the ovaries or the tube, something that's in the reproductive tract and not thinking that somewhere else in the body in the pelvic region would have anything to do with implantation. So, okay, if you have a problem that's local, don't worry about it. We're going to do IVF. We're going to take the eggs, create the embryos, and we'll put them right there. So we've avoided this, this, this system where the egg needs to get from point A to point B by doing this for you. And believe me, there are cases of women with endometriosis where they've, where they've gotten pregnant. Where our tests fit in is that, uh, you know, when I introduced the test, I said, gosh, you know, we're here. You should be doing this on everybody. Well, uh, I understand everyone's paying for everything out of pocket for the most part. And here comes the test with some data, but not a ton of data. And you're asking us to screen everybody. Well, I, I pulled back from that right away. And I just realized you guys are good at what you do. You get the majority of the people pregnant. But the, the reality of the situation is, is that some of these women are going to, you know, I hate to use the analogy of a Mercedes, but imagine going into a uh, hundred women coming into a, a Mercedes dealership, all putting down, 40 or $70,000, but only about 40 to 60% are leaving with the Mercedes. You know, would you do that proposition? Uh, that's, that's what's happening in the fertility world. It, it, statistics are amazing, but there's still a flip side to that where there's still a lot of women that are going through this process and ending up without answers. And that's where our tests fit in. Our, our test is that, that group of women that have just about given up, have exhausted everything, they're now finding out about this test and finding out that there may be a new pathway to pregnancy because no one had talked about endometriosis. And because of that, and because of the social awareness, now doctors are introducing the test much earlier. They're introducing it after the, the, the first uh, the failed uh, IVF transfer. So 
it's, it's just great to have seen the conversation. And that's the evolution of a test and acceptance too. It takes that, that period to get from, well, we'll give it a try. And we've got a handful of patients that are challenging and are about to walk out and we'll never see them again to now doctors being a lot more proactive. Hey, before we go and do the same thing, expect a different result, there's something you should consider that might be a factor here. And, and now I'm getting a lot more engaging discussions with doctors about that because they want their success rates there. They want to do the right thing for their patients. And they, they don't want a patient to come in and say, why didn't you tell me about this test that I just pulled off the internet you know, $40,000 ago? So there's right. a lot more healthier discussions going on now because there's a lot more data. All right, absolutely. And the cost of the test, since you brought up how much the IVF is, what is the cost of the test? Our test is $690, and that includes not only the BCL6 marker that you get, but it's also a, a pathologist giving you a full pathology report. So no different than having uh, something removed by a dermatologist or whatever. You're getting someone looking at that, looking at any other signs of infection, cancer. It doesn't happen, uh, obviously, that often, but you're getting a full pathology analysis in addition to that, that BCL6 data. Tell me about the transformation and, and, you know, helping doctors understand the value of the test. So when we first met, I believe it was mostly the West Coast of the U.S. where the doctors really, um, you know, thought that this was of great value and, you know, there were some challenges. So what would you say helped really move the needle? I mean, it sounds like just having the data. But then, um, but what else has helped and, and maybe what gaps do you see ahead that you're trying to work through? Well, we're a small company too, so I don't have an army mm. of people out there marketing the test and that always uh, does help. But it, it takes a while for doctors to accept new things. They get hit yep. with so many new things. How do you sift through that? Uh, for us, what happened is there's a couple key centers, uh, one in uh, particular in uh, New York that uh, started using the test from the beginning. And I had some on the West Coast, and it was the same thing. Patients were leaving these other practices because they couldn't, couldn't get pregnant and getting consultations at these centers. And these centers ended up getting them pregnant. You know, not all of them, but the majority of them, and offered them our tests. And one particular uh, uh, doctor, doctor uh, she's known as Dr. Amy. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Amy Evzada up in Northern California. She's known as the Egg Whisperer, by the way, on Facebook. And she has a show, and she's out there communicating with patients and talking about not just our tests, but other tests. And her attitude is, I want all this information up front, and so should you, before we just yes. dive into that. And every center has a different approach. But what happened is that those centers were offering the test up front or after a failure or two and getting great results and letting people know, uh, we, we want you to do this test. We don't want to keep going down this route. And you also had women that had uh, prior egg retrieval. So maybe they had limited embryo reserves at that point. So throw the kitchen sink at it, not just yep. expecting a different result. Uh, you had other other uh, women that maybe had their fertility benefits through, I'll give you an example, Starbucks or something like that. Excited they have fertility benefits, but finding out they it only went so far before they had to go into their own pocket. And by the time you go through the whole process there. So people are wanting to know, what can I do up front before I just exhaust all these funds that makes uh, uh, sense? So it, it's really up to women as a consumer and the families to figure out, do they want to do tests like this up front? Do they want to give it a try first and see how it goes for them? Um, 
And then the area that we're now focusing on, in addition to that, is women that can get pregnant, they just can't stay pregnant. They're losing uh, the baby in the first trimester. And we're finding, our, we're finding our marker is present in those situations too. So it's not only preventing them from implanting, but it's preventing them from keeping that pregnancy to term. Interesting. And where are you with that research now? Uh, we've already published a paper on that. We have okay. women that are using uh, this test right now to understand their recurrent pregnancy loss. You know, a lot of times it's, it's, it may be genetic reasons. Uh, they may not have had the eggs tested and the embryo might've uh, had some type of genetic defect that happens in a good amount of the situations. But we're excited about that because there's a lot of women that may never be able to access uh, uh, advanced fertility services, but they wanna know why they can't get pregnant or stay pregnant. And that, that, that's something I hope in uh, next year that we'll have out in uh, the full force for any woman to be able to, uh, we'll, they'll, we'll, they'll buy the kit from us uh, and they'll take it to their OBGYN, have the test done and send it to uh, our laboratory. And there may be a treatment option for them that uh, very simple that allows them to be able to get pregnant the next time and hold on to that pregnancy. So very excited about that possibility. That's awesome. Now what, so what are the treatment options? So you test positive for BCL6, and I think you and I discussed this a lot because we ran into each other a lot last year. Yeah. So but what, um, what, what do they do? So you get tested positive, what's next? Sure. Well, the gold standard was always laparoscopy. Let's, let's go in and look for it. And you know, I had to deal with that a lot. Uh, at the beginning because uh, there were no other treatment modalities that were published. And we really can't talk about treatment modalities unless we've got some published data. That just is a disservice and, uh, uh, to the folks out there. So laparoscopy was the first. They would go in and they were finding it in, the, in a lot of these patients, the majority of them. Uh, so instead of being used as a diagnostic tool, it was being used as a treatment tool to confirm and then to, uh, to treat those affected areas. The uh, the other exciting part of it is that uh, we used a hormone suppression therapy, which involves Depo-Lupron, was the, uh, the, the brand name of the uh, uh, therapy that was used. And what that was doing is putting women basically in active uh, menopause for 60 days. So the idea of that doesn't sound thrilling to a lot of women. They, they associate that with hot flashes and, and everything or worried that they, their reproductive system won't be the same. But it's been used for a long time now. We published a study uh, a year, year and a half ago, and it compared laparoscopy to the women that did the hormone suppression therapy and got almost the ex exact same results. They were uh, uh, just under 60% on the live birth rates for for both on the very next transfer. So these are women, they did the hormone suppression therapy for 60 days, went right into a frozen embryo transfer protocol. And uh, in that study, I think it was 58% uh, live birth rate was reported, uh, a little bit higher in the clinical pregnancy rate, but the, the live birth rate is what you know I, I look at. So that was real exciting. And that kind of gave doctors permission to really, okay, there's valid research out there that we can uh, present to the patients. And since then, we're collecting information on our uh, top referring centers, and they're even getting better success rates from that. We're seeing an average of about 63, 64%, I think, on our, our centers now. And we've got outcome data on about 350 patients. And uh, I, I'm hoping by the end of this year, first quarter, we'll have that up to about 1,200. So We've got this uh, shared uh, network program where our biggest centers are 
letting us know back what kind of uh, treatment options they used on the positive patients and then what the outcomes were. And it's great because the, uh, anyone can access this data. Uh, we, we share that with anybody that's out there. So it's not published, but it's their own colleagues, their own uh, network of reproductive endocrinologists seeing that other doctors are using it and getting results. And that makes them want to say, okay, my success rates now are 55%. This could take me into the 70, 80% range because they're going to help me with these most challenging patients. So very exciting. Wow. That's truly incredible. A question about the, the two modalities of treatment. And I, I think this is important for women to understand. So the way I view it is they're basically dealing with two decisions, both of which have their own pros and cons that I think are really important to take care, take into account that women may not be aware of. And, and given that you see the data from your perspective, I'd love for you to react. One is if you're doing the, the surgery, you know, one of the things, so we interviewed Dr. Sechkin, who's an endometriosis surgeon, and he started Endometriosis Foundation of America. And he, by the way, loves the, the test and thinks it's a game changer. Um, so again, kudos that a surgeon also says that, you know, one of the things he really talks about in the podcast is how there's really few surgeons in the world who, I think he said maybe one to 200, who can effectively do the surgery. So one is if you need to get it done and you know, you don't live in a place where you have the world-renowned surgeons and their team in case you have endometriosis in your bowel and things like that. It's a really tough place because you need it done right. Then with Depo-Lupron, you know, I've connected with some folks in the advocacy world and they are just really, really against it because of the bone density loss and I think they're more concerned for those who are on it long-term, like if they're, they have endo and want to be on it for longer term. And I think here you're talking more about 60 days. I personally had a really bad experience with Lupron, so I will never go on it again. But uh, you know, I think it's, it's not as simple as it's one or the other. Like they're, it's a hard decision because Depo-Lupron is cheaper, but you can have all these risks. Then you have um, laparoscopic, laparoscopic surgery, which has its risk, but then you also have to make sure you find the right surgeon and it's way more expensive. So I'm curious you know, to hear your reaction to like the very blunt statement that I'm making and just like words of wisdom for women to take this into account because you have a larger universe that you're sure. hearing the feedback from. Sure. And so... First of all, I'm not a doctor. So for me to talk I about treatment, I, I walk a fine line or what have you. I can just share with you anecdotally and sure. then what the uh, the data has shown. But the, the majority of, of folks in a couple different things, some of it can, it's financially influenced. Some people have coverage for laparoscopy. If you go in the South, for whatever reason, laparoscopy is much more covered than it is elsewhere in the country. So there, people are going to opt for what is covered. Uh, okay. Uh, Depo-Lupron is not always uh, uh, covered and is expensive and has the side effects. And if you go on the internet, no one puts down good things about Depo-Lupron on the internet if they had a great experience. So that's true. Stories uh, take on a different life. We understand that. When it comes to women trying to, to start a family, they're willing to put up with a lot. Yes, We're they are. looking at this long term and saying, what else can we do? And so uh, in addition to those treatment modalities, you know, we have an NIH grant, I'm not sure you're aware of, but we got awarded uh, about a year and a half ago, and we're deep into that process. So we're looking at uh, a handful of things. We're looking for an alternative sample type, too. So first of all, an endometrial biopsy, 
a woman trying to get pregnant, no problem with that. Uh, a 19 year old wanting to know why they have painful periods, that's not gonna be a great test. So we're, we're looking at things like blood, saliva, all these different things to see if we can find these markers and a less invasive uh, technique uh, on that. Uh, we're also looking at different treatment modalities. So right now there's a next generation of what Depolupron is. Uh, and uh, women are seeing the commercials for endometriosis, pain medications. I, I can't remember the trade name uh, right now, but that is something we're uh, using in the study. We just got approval to use. And so uh, it supposedly has less side effects than the Depolupron. So we're excited about that. And we're gonna be doing that and comparing it to Depolupron uh, to share in, in the results. So there's other different, uh, there's other things that are, they're looking at for modalities, not just us, but other, other folks there. Um, and we'll see what works. So there's the treatment of endometriosis and then there's the treatment to help women get pregnant. So I'm always cautious to tell people, you know, everything that we're doing, we're publishing, it's not curing any endometriosis, it's, right. it, but it is suppressing it and giving you that opportunity okay. to uh, be able to have a successful transfer. Um, I, I hear everything about Depolupron. Uh, I hear women say <laughs> they have no issues. And then I have the ones that were on the edge of a building ready to, to scream at the world uh, uh, and everything. So I do know that doctors use some uh, Advacs that uh, help calm those symptoms and everything, but uh, it's really it comes down to a decision they have to make with their doctor. But most people, they don't want to have surgery. If they don't have other, any other symptoms uh, visible, that they, they typically opt for the hormone suppression therapy. It's very hard for a lot of women to consider surgery unless they've got something really jumping out at them. And, and insurance wants to hear abdominal pain, pelvic pain, that type of thing to, to trigger you know, wanting to be able to pay for that in a lot of the states as well. So uh, it's just a shorter time, I think, with the, the Depolupron right now. You know, it's, it's great that there's options. And I know when I did the, the surgery, the way I weighed it was 15,000 for an IVF, 5,000 for the surgery. IVF hasn't worked till now. I've been at this three and a half years. This is cheaper and different and sure. it turned out to be correct. So, you know, I think this is all hard. So I just want to commend the women who are going through this. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year here, we'll be able to take a biopsy at the time of egg retrieval. By being able to do that, the patient is sedated, so they don't have to uh, experience the temporary discomfort of going through a biopsy. It's also one less visit, because it can be done at the same time. But, but more importantly, they have information available to them much earlier in the process. So they can do a transfer, and if, if it didn't work, then they already have this information that, hey, we have a positive receptiva test. Maybe we should consider uh, uh, treatment. And so that's also going to help move this to the front of uh, uh, the workups on, on the patients versus uh, a lot of the endometrial biopsies now are done for either our test or for some of the timing biopsies to try and uh, uh, figure out, optimize the transfer timing. So uh, by being able to biopsy then or outside of the window of implantation, I think we're going to be able to uh, offer the test to a lot of women in a more convenient way. Every time I've connected with you, it just seems like this is not about, hey, we have this product, let's just go sell it. Like, what, what's so clear to me that your organization is doing is, here's a problem, how do we solve it? 
okay, we've got this test. What do we do next? What's the next best thing? And I just, I'm so grateful. And I'm sure all the women who are going to listen to this podcast will be so grateful. And, and I can't wait to see where this evolves. I had a conversation with a, a surgeon. It wasn't Dr. Suchkin. And he said, I don't know why you need this test because they're going to have to get the surgery anyway. So skip the, the test and just go do the, the surgery. What do you say? I mean, I, th I have an obvious answer to that, but I'd, I'd like to hear from you on um, what your reaction is to, to someone who would say that. Well, this is a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Well, not everyone shows up there. Uh, laparoscopy is something that is talked about, but it's, it's, how do I say this nicely? It's very interesting. When you're at a doctor's office and they don't do that particular procedure, uh, referring someone out is kind of reserved for when you absolutely need it. Right. No one's thinking about asymptomatic endometriosis. I mean, you, it almost sounds like when I come in, like I'm inventing something because doctors love to feel it, seal it, touch it to know it's there. Right. And here I am saying, trust a marker and then possibly refer this person out to surgery or stop what you're doing and shut that person down for 60 days. That was, a, they didn't want to hear either one of those at first. Uh, but when I just said, focus on your most challenging patients, you know, my, my comment is, what else do you do for that woman at that point? Do you send them out for surgery? They don't have any reason to do that in a lot of those situations. So if all of a sudden that patient starts talking about their history and they have heavy bleeding and some of the things we talked about, you know, painful intercourse is one of the, the biggest ones that they never linked to that. And that goes back to endometriosis being with them and no one's thinking about it. And their doctor certainly isn't thinking about it in the IVF setting at that point either until they've gone through a couple failures. So they might get referrals for that, but I just don't think it's uh, as commonplace. And what we're doing is offering up something that says, hey, this can be done in lieu, in lieu of surgery to possibly detect it as it may play a role in your inability to get pregnant. And that's, that's something that's easier to consider than sending someone off to surgery wondering, you know, are you really confident in that decision? Was, was it really needed? But, right. I, I'm not going to argue with a, a surgeon that has much more education than I do. I just think the the setting itself doesn't lend itself to women just saying, hey, why don't I go off and have surgery and we'll get some results. Someone right. really has to make a strong recommendation for that. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. I just wanted to at least hear that just in case anyone's wondering, like, why should I even get the test? And I just go straight to the surgery. And I, I think you're right. Like there's it's more it's much more than that. Um, so thanks for answering that question. So what would you say is, you know, your greatest hope now for, for women's health? I mean, such great strides have been made here and, you know, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on your greatest hopes. Well, you know, right now, all of our business is, uh, kind of, uh, the referrals are coming from the, the fertility centers. And so right there, you're talking about less than, uh, 25, uh, 20, 25% of the population being able to access those type of services. So our test can be done uh, for anybody that's having problems uh, getting pregnant. It's not a test that's reserved for the IVF setting. So what we wanted to do is be able to prove the efficacy of, of our testing and, and the treatment modalities. So then it could be offered to the OBGYN population and, and the uh, uh, number of women that may never Either maybe for whatever reason, they, IVF is not something they're willing to consider. It may not just be financial. It may be religious. It might be just their own, their own beliefs or what have you. All of that is, uh, you know, is, 
that's a large population we're talking yes. about, not only in the U.S. and globally. So I want to be able to believe that anybody can access this test. And so we're, we're hoping to have a, a less expensive form of the test, at least that can give them a qualitative yes or no type of thing. So they, they know that maybe they could try some hormone therapy treatment, which is a lot more in their reach than uh, considering IVF. So that's our greatest hope. I think uh, recurrent pregnancy loss, uh, I've experienced that through uh, you know my own personal situations and everything. It's a very tough, tough thing for women yes, it to is. not have answers. There's blame, there's guilt, there's just uh, a, a feeling of, of hopelessness and then a fear of trying again because it's a traumatic experience. If, if we can, uh, again, part of that is mother nature and the body saying this was, there's, there's an abnormal situation here. Maybe this embryo never developed properly and, and that's why the pregnancy was lost. But there's a lot of them that we believe are being lost because of just mild endometriosis that is, is wreaking havoc. You have to remember, it's like a friend that shows up once a month and just flares up at the worst time when you're trying to get pregnant. Yep. And so our, our goal is if we can help the uh, 19 or 20 year old uh, understand that maybe they have this condition, we can prevent them from having years of scarring where all of a sudden they do have problems getting pregnant when they do want to start a family. That's, that's the real exciting thing for us. So we're kind of in a, a group of companies that are looking at uh, different ways to be able to uh, um, uh, either detect or end up diagnosing the disease uh, that, you know, right now we're going back to our conversation on endometriosis and how many women have it. Uh, it's amazing how many women get misdiagnosed that have yeah. it. They are, they, they'll, by the time they get a diagnosis, I think the, agreed upon thing is seven to 10 years before a woman gets an actual yep. diagnosis. And that is a fact. <laughs> that's, a lot, that's a lot of scarring on a woman's body uh, that can create fertility issues uh, later on. But more importantly for them, they, you know, they don't get diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and, and put on a medication and it's not going to help them because that's not the problem, that type of thing. So those are our, our great ambitions. We're, we're playing around with a lot of neat things. We have this NIH grant. We're working with people like Stanford and Wake Forest and U University of North Carolina. It, it's, it's, it's really fun to watch. I mean, I'm more on the business side, but when I talk with the researchers and what they're doing and what we're able to help fund and everything, that's, that's the cool part. That is amazing. So how does a woman like what are the logistics of accessing the test? Is it that they go to their REI? Um, can they just get it on their own? Like, how does it work? Sure, sure. The test, uh, it's available in, oh, like I said, over 300 fertility centers. Not everyone wants to go to a fertility center or is comfortable doing that because they, uh, they think they have to pay for a lot of services or go through IVF first or what have you. Um, I, I think, you know, what I tell women is if you're going to go after a uh, look at a fertility center, uh, my first question is, uh, you know, try and figure out and read reviews. I mean, some places are labeled as an IVF center and they push you right towards IVF. Others, you know, will correct me all the time if I use that term and they'll say, Chris, we're a fertility center. We don't you know, we <laughs> look at everything and they all do, but uh, some are more business oriented towards IVF than, than others. So they can get the test that way. They can get the test done through their, their local OBGYN and that's the... Uh, uh, kind of the hidden secret right now. They can call us, we'll send them a collection kit for free uh, and they can have the test done. They, they just pay when they submit their sample. And a lot of women do that with their OBGYN just to figure out, you know, am I in this group of women that are having that, that issue? So we work with patients directly 
and um, their OBGYN can do an endometrial biopsy. We give them all the instructions. We have an app that's out there for patients and, and providers that gives them all the information on how to access the testing. So uh, we just haven't marketed it to the OBGYN population because obviously there's a lot more of them and it takes a lot more time, but yes. uh, that, that, that's where we're headed. And how is their receptivity to a patient walking in and saying, I want this? How's that going? In the OBGYN market? Yes. Uh, I don't know yet because we've only done a handful of, okay. uh, of things, uh, so it'd be hard to tell. Very busy people, uh, and uh, when if they haven't heard of a test, you know they need to be updated on the research, and sometimes they're just too busy. So uh, we want to uh, eventually work with a partner that has a lot more of the educational arm than we do to be able to get out to the OBGYNs. Right now, the patients are doing it themselves. They're patient advocates. They're saying, I want to have this test done. I can have this test done. I'm paying for it myself. I'm not going through insurance. They can try and submit to insurance later on for reimbursement, but the majority are paying out of their own pocket and uh, asking the OBGYN to do that. And it's really simple results to interpret and kind of lets them know where, where they stand if this might be an issue for them. Okay. No, that's, that's good to hear. And, and, you know, I agree, like it's, it's tough to, I mean, I come from the healthcare field and I used to be in the, um, the sales force and it's, it's, it's that, it takes thousands, I, mean, so I guess for the women to understand this, it takes thousands of sales reps to go to these OBGYNs to help educate. And uh, it's a lot of effort and it takes time. It's not like you go in one time, educate them, boom, now everyone's using a new diagnostic test or a new pharma product. It is extremely complicated and it takes a long time. And, you know, honestly, this is why when I started building this business, I did a lot of thinking, do I do patient facing or doctor facing? And what I realized is trying to change the medical community is really tough. But I think if patients use their voices, that's where the faster change will occur. But then you also have companies like yourself who are also making tools to have better data to help drive that decision making in the, in the doctor's um, offices. So this is all just uh, very exciting. So I totally understand why you're focusing on the REI. So ladies, stand up, get the test if you think you need it. And just know you have to, you know, right now we're just in this space where we have to be empowered and, and say what we need to our doctors. Again, kudos to Dr. Lessie and you and the entire team of researchers that you all work with. I think this is just such a game changer. And I hope this is just the beginning for women's health. And I know you're company is called Cicero DX. So I um, assume and hope that there will be other diagnostic tests coming down the pike once you guys really perfect uh, Receptiva DX. So well, that's I'm my a, hope for you. <laughs> I'm a salesperson at heart. So I hate to say too much about the future until it's here. So it's I know, like, I uh, know. <laughs> there's a lot of great things happening. It's a fascinating field. And uh, uh, I think you'll see the excitement for us, not just our company, but endometriosis. Oh, it's absolutely. getting the attention. It was this little uh, disease that was so prominent, but no one wanted to talk about it because there was no treatment for it. And right. now you're seeing all kinds of things and commercials and everything. So uh, it, it's just couldn't happen at a better time for anybody, even if they're not concerned about their fertility right now. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to being in touch and seeing how things evolve. And um, I can't wait to, for everyone to hear this and the great news and the great hope for women. Well, thanks for the time. I appreciate it.